Good morning. The scripture reading today is from John chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. If you're using a pew Bible, the verses are found on pages 75 and 76 in the New Testament. John chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went back to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so we're getting back into John chapter 6 this morning. And um, as we do so, why don't we pray? Uh, We can do nothing without the Lord's help and his spirit, without the spirit of the Lord moving among us, uh, we will not profit from anything that's being done. So let's pray for the Lord's blessing. Lord, we do thank you for your faithfulness. That's always our hope and stay. It's this faithful promise that you've given us of salvation, of reconciliation with you, of, of, of being with us and never leaving nor forsaking us all sealed with the blood of your Son, guaranteed by his righteousness and 
and demonstrated in his resurrection. Lord, we, our hope is fully and completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no other hope. You, Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life to where else shall we go. Uh, we, there's nowhere for us to turn but to you. And so, Lord, as we turn to you this morning, as we come to your word, seeking afresh uh, your grace to be poured into our hearts and to be renewed and refreshed in the truth of the gospel, Father, we pray that you would allow your spirit to move among us with such power that we would be forever changed as a result of our gathering here together this morning. All right, so I mentioned, as I, I mentioned last week, as we were getting into John 6, that uh, just, just get an overview of the chapter so that we're all uh, aware of, of the flow and the structure of, of how this, is, this chapter is being presented to us. Basically, there are three main segments in John chapter 6. Uh, you've got the first being the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. The second is Jesus' miracle of walking on water. And then the third segment is the longest segment, and that is Jesus explaining to the crowd the significance of the miracle of feeding them with bread. What that was supposed to be picturing, what that was typifying, and what these Jews were supposed to learn from what Jesus did. So in essence, what we have in John 6 are two miracles that are expressing to us who Jesus is, and then a lengthy explanation explaining to us the significance of what Jesus has done. Um, and as I said last week, in all of this, Jesus is giving us a practical demonstration, or really just a commentary on what he said in John 5.39. Jesus said in John 5.39 that, that all the scriptures of the Old Testament bear witness to him. Well, how, does, how are we to understand what that means? What does it mean that all of the Old Testament scriptures bear witness to Jesus? Well, from John chapter 6, really at least through John chapter 15, maybe 17, we find Jesus giving us one illustration after another that is really teaching us and instructing us in how we are to read the Old Testament. And in John 6, there's a really important concept being, being made to us uh, in relation to typology, where uh, Jesus is drawing a direct connection between himself and the manna that God provided for the people of Israel in the wilderness. And he's saying, that was representing me, and I am the fulfillment of that, and I'm here, and yet you won't receive me. There are all these different ways where we're beginning here in John 6, Jesus is beginning to show us how we are supposed to read the Old Testament, and how it is that the Old Testament bears witness to him. It's very, very remarkable the way that the Spirit of God led John the Apostle to write this book. It, it's just, as it's been said, it's, so, it's shallow enough where an infant can swim in it, uh, or a toddler, it's deep enough that an elephant could get lost in its depths. And that's, that's what I feel as I turn to the Gospel of John. Now this morning my plan was to talk about both of the miracles, uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water and uh, being received by his disciples. But as I was working through it, I only got through one of the miracles. And um, I didn't want to extend this much longer because of the table today. I'm, I'm trying to be gracious to you all and merciful to our mothers in the room who are uh, handling their children so well. So, All right, so let's look at this first miracle, Jesus feeding the 5,000. This is actually the only miracle 
that is commented on or is included in all four gospel accounts apart from the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Christ. So apart from that, this is the only miracle that all four gospel accounts mention. Um, Now John is focusing our attention on this miracle to to draw our, our focus to certain details that were made known to us by Christ through this miracle so that we don't miss the point of what Jesus was making when he was multiplying the bread and multiplying the fish to feed these 5,000 men. Now you notice in John chapter 6, verse 4, one of those details that John highlights that the others don't. One of those details is that this miracle took place near the time of the Passover. It's actually the feast of the Passover. And you remember the Passover feast is not just the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. It's not just feeding upon the lamb, but it also included the week long of eating unleavened bread where there was no leaven to be found in any of the dwelling places of the people of Israel during that feast time. Well, this is, this is the second Passover that John has mentioned, right? So, so we know by that, that's a chronological timestamp. We, we know by that that we are now into the second year of Jesus' earthly ministry. And there's only going to be one more Passover mentioned, and that begins in John 11, and that concludes the rest of the book. So it's important for us to, uh, to understand as far as the timeline and the, 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 the chronological order of events and where Jesus is in his ministry, but that's not the reason why John makes mention of this, being, this miracle taking place near the Passover. As we've come to know, when John makes reference to some minute or seemingly insignificant detail, at least a detail that's not pertinent to the story, normally there's a theological importance uh, attached to that detail. Here, when John makes mention of this miracle happening near the Passover, it's not just a side detail. It's not just like a happenstance. Oh, by the way, this happened to be at the, near the time of the Passover. No, Jesus is purposefully choosing to do this miracle at a time when the crowd is thinking about and remembering their redemption from slavery in the land of Egypt. It's it's taking place at a time where these people are preparing to celebrate the entirety of the feast of the Passover. So they're they're cleaning out the leaven and they're getting ready to eat unleavened bread for a week, which, by the way, that that feast of unleavened bread gives way to a different feast. Does anyone know what that feast is? The, The feast of unleavened bread marks the beginning. The end of that feast marks the beginning of the feast of weeks where you begin to count a number of weeks all the way up until the day of Pentecost, where there's a day of feasting for for Israel. And do you remember what that was supposed to commemorate? The the day of Pentecost. It was supposed to commemorate the Lord's faithfulness in providing food and, and, and leading his people faithfully through the wilderness experience and faithfully bringing them in to the promised inheritance, the, the promised land. So right here at this point where everyone's mind is, is, is supposed to be focusing in on the great saving mighty acts of Yahweh concerning his people Israel in the Old Testament, it's at that time that Jesus moves forward to demonstrate himself to be Yahweh Yireh, right? the Lord who provides, the one who will provide for the needs of his people. A very interesting time frame. So John makes mention that this was near the time of the Passover. And, uh, and, and let's, as, as we begin walking through this miracle, we notice first in, in verse 5 that John begins by pointing out a certain need that was there in the crowd. 
In John 6, 5, we see Jesus looking at the crowd of people coming to him and then saying to Philip, one of his disciples, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? You know, it's actually, it's a very interesting question that Jesus asked Philip, and it should jog in our memory a question that someone else asked in, reg- in relation to the people of Israel as they were walking through the wilderness. Moses didn't ask one of his followers or one of the people of Israel where he was going to find bread. And Yahweh did not ask Moses, Moses, where are you going to find bread for all these people? But in Numbers 11, Moses asked Yahweh, Yahweh, where am I going to find bread for all of these people? Well, here we have the inverse of that. We have God incarnate, we have the Lord in the flesh asking His disciple, where are we going to find bread to feed these people? Right? It's supposed to signal in our minds that there's a connection between what's happening here and what happened during the time of the wilderness wandering when the Lord was providing manna for His people supernaturally. And that's going to be unpacked more fully as we walk through John chapter 6, right? Jesus is making direct connections between Himself and manna. Well, that begins right here in John 6, 5. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, we learn from from the other gospel accounts and even even from what John has already said that this crowd has been following Jesus around the lake, around the Sea of Galilee, right? So they've probably traversed about nine miles. As Jesus was sailing about seven miles across the lake, they began walking around the shoreline so that they would catch up with him. That's what we learn from the other gospel accounts. So they probably started following him the day before, right? And so now it's, it's the day after, and we saw in verse, verses 2 and 3 that as the, as the crowd was following him, what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't stick around and hang out with them. He actually withdrew from them and went up the mountain, right? He went up the, uh, the, the, the hillside to the Golan Heights on the uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, And so he's up there, and then all of a sudden he notices this crowd of 5,000 men, probably up to 20,000 men, women, and children, following him up the mountainside. They probably haven't eaten in a couple of days. They've exerted a lot of energy to keep up with Jesus, and Jesus has been teaching them throughout the whole day. That's what we learn in the other gospel accounts. And so now here's this crowd of people who have been following Jesus but who have no food or no provision to sustain them as Jesus ministers to them. And so Jesus asks, where are we going to find bread? Now, in one sense, there's no reason why Jesus should feel responsible to provide for these people's needs. After all, these people, this crowd, they were the ones who decided to follow Jesus around the Sea of Galilee, right? They did that on their own. And they were the ones who failed to bring adequate supplies for themselves to feed themselves as they're following Jesus around this lake, right? So they should have brought their own food if they knew that that's what they were going to do. Why is this Jesus's problem? And why is Jesus so concerned about providing for this need, right? It's like the wedding in, the, in, in, in Cana of Galilee, right? It, it wasn't Jesus' fault that the Uh, the bridegroom did not provide enough wine for all of the guests who were at the wedding. And yet Jesus' mother comes to him and says, where where are we? They've run out of wine. And and, and what's implied in that is, what are we going to do to help them because they've run out of wine? And Jesus looks at her and says, woman, what does that have to do with me? 
probably had a more respectful tone to it than what we might imagine. <laughs> Woman? My mom would slap me across the face if I said that to her. And, uh, <laughs> boy? And hear her saying that now. But that wasn't Jesus' problem with running out of wine at the wedding in Cana. So why was he so willing to engage and to provide for these needs of the people? If it's not his problem, then why does he seem to take to himself the responsibility to support and supply their need? Well, we could say that this is an opportunity for him to reveal his glory, right? So he takes a moment of need and he purposes to use that moment of need to manifest his glory and we would be absolutely right in saying that. Yes, Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity to put his glory on display so that everyone would see it. And I praise Jesus Christ for that. That when he came, he came in order to disclose himself. He did not come to keep his glory hidden. He came to make it manifest. So that people could see, so that they could be confronted with it, so that they could bow and recognize the reality of the God who is in their midst. That's what Jesus is doing, and this is an opportunity where he can do that. But there's another reason that we are made aware of in the other gospel accounts as to why Jesus chose to take this responsibility to feed the crowd on himself. Does anyone know what that is? Mark 6.34 is because he felt compassion for them. It's very interesting to keep in mind what happens with this crowd, with Jesus. At the end of John chapter 6, the majority of this crowd is going to do what? They're going to turn away from Christ. They're going to walk away from him because they're so offended by his message. You're saying that we, if we want to have life, we have to eat your flesh and drink your blood. What? You're saying you are the bread who came down out of heaven from God? Who do you think you are? Wait, no one can come to you unless the Father who sent you reveals you to them, chooses to draw them near to you? That's, that's lunacy. I'm done listening to this. And most of the crowd leaves. You know, Jesus knew that was going to happen from the beginning, and yet here we find the compassion of our Lord being expressed to a crowd of people who were not truly believing in Him. He looked upon this crowd clamoring and seeking desperately to draw near to Him, and, and in that light... He saw through their outward expressions of chaos and desperation down to the root issue. And what was that root issue? The root problem in this, in this crowd, or, or excuse me, the root problem in this crowd was that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Their God-appointed shepherds had abandoned the post. They hadn't fed the people with the knowledge of Yahweh's will. They had corrupted religion. They had turned it into some expression of works and merit and, and, and hypocrisy. Jesus looks upon this crowd as, as, as a crowd of people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And being the good shepherd that he is, he takes it upon himself to provide for the sheep. 
And notice that compassion in verse 37 of Mark 6, that compassion doesn't just stick with him teaching them what the Lord's will is and leading them in paths of righteousness for Yahweh's sake. That's not where his compassion remains. His compassion extends even to providing for their physical needs. That same compassion that led Jesus to tenderly and compassionately feed the souls of these people with the truth also extended to a desire to feed their bodies with food. You know, just as a side note of application, I don't want to spend a ton of time here. But you know, in in missions and in outreach and in service, it, it is our primary focus to hand the gospel to people. And to see them spiritually made well and reconciled to the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is our main concern when we go out and do evangelism in our neighborhood and in the city. Our main concern, our main focus is that people would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That they would turn from sin. That they would receive the sacrifice that Christ made in their behalf and that they would be delivered from the wrath to come. Right? What good does it do if ultimately I feed someone their entire lives, but they never come to Jesus in saving faith, and then at the end of it stand before the Lord for judgment and are condemned in His presence? What good have I actually done then? And so our main concern is always the spiritual well-being of His people. But we can often think that this is the only concern that we ought to have in relation to people. You know, Christ shows us in this passage that he is concerned to provide for the physical needs of people as well. Now, it is a, it is a springboard into discussion, discussing the, the spiritual needs of the people. But don't minimize the fact that he looks out upon this crowd and he looks upon them with compassion enough to care for their physical well-being. We see that expressed here. We see it in the way Jesus taught us to pray. We are to pray that the Lord would provide for our daily bread. We see it in His promise not to worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear as we move forward in service and following the will of Christ. We're not to worry about those things. We're to seek His kingdom and His righteousness first and then He promises all these other things will be added to us. So just as a, as, a, as a moment of application here, beloved, be encouraged that there's no aspect of your life that is not touched by the loving compassion of your Lord Jesus Christ. There is no part of your life where Jesus looks upon you with indifference. Right? It's not as though Jesus looks at you and says, well, your spirit is good, I'm checked out, i got other things to go focus on. No, Lord, I'm feeling, I'm feeling really hungry right now and I don't have enough money to buy food and I pray, Lord, I pray, would you please show your faithfulness even in this small way and just prove yourself as my good shepherd and providing for my needs right now. Jesus is delighted to hear a prayer like that. Do you believe that? We overreact so much in the Christian life, and we can overreact to like the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, and we can think, no, we should never be asking the Lord for that job. We should never be asking the Lord for more money, right, to support our families. We should never be asking the Lord to provide for those kinds of things. It's all spiritual, and God's kingdom is all spiritual. 
Well, as we're going to see, Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, but it has radical impact upon the physical realm of our lives. You think Jesus isn't concerned about your physical well-being? Then what is the point of the resurrection? Jesus cares. You are a holistic creature. And Jesus cares about every aspect of your life. I, I, I want to go on on that point, but just let me end that point on this. No matter what it is that's going on in your life, Jesus wants you to bring it to him. No matter what it is. It's that kind of child life or childlike innocency, right? And that, that childlike dependence where we come to our, we come to our, our brother, we come to our father for everything. Lord, I need this. I need that. I, I can't find my keys, Lord. This happens to me so much. I can't find my keys, Lord, and I'm running late. <laughs> and I, the Lord's been faithful so far. I made it here today. There's no part of our lives Jesus isn't concerned about. He delights in our well-being. Now, moving from need, John goes on to present to us here in John 6, that this need of the crowd became an opportunity to test the disciples. The crowd's need was an opportunity for Christ to test his disciples. Look in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, he asked Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Well, in verse 6, Philip responds, or excuse me, no, that's not Philip. Verse 6, we have this parenthetical phrase, this explanation of, of what was going on behind the scenes. It's not that Jesus really didn't know what he was about to do, and he was asking his disciples to help him come up with a plan. That's not what was going on. Jesus knew what he was going to do from the very beginning. From the start of this whole scene, Jesus knew what he was going to do for the crowd, but he asks his disciple this question in order to test him. In order to test him. Now that is a remarkable insight into how the Lord interacts with us relationally. Right? We often think of the sovereignty of God in, in terms of kesara, sarah, what God has willed will be. It's all going to happen. It's all going to take place. And what we do doesn't matter. Right? It's this, it's this uh, nihilistic type view. This fatalistic view of, 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 of the world around us. It's just all going to happen according to God's sovereign decree. So why do anything? You know, it's interesting. If, if Jesus here in this passage gives us insight into the way that God interacts with us as His children, he does, he does have a plan. And He knows from the very beginning what that plan is. He knows exactly what He's going to do. And yet it doesn't keep Him from stooping down and condescending to interact with His disciples on this level. I know what I'm going to do, but hey, Philip, what do you think? Where... Where are we going to find bread for so many people? And you just see a smile on Christ's face. Like, what do you think, Philip? Where, where in the world can we find bread to feed this crowd? It's an opportunity to test Philip. And in testing Philip, to test all, of the, all the disciples. And so Jesus wasn't asking Philip to come up with a plan to address this problem that was confronting them. And, and uh, we might not make it through the rest of the sermon today. 
We can so often treat Christ like that, can't we? As if the Lord is waiting for us to throw our hat in the ring, give give our two cents on the matter, so that he can somehow figure out what he's going to do to address whatever problem it is that we're facing. No, God knows from the very beginning what he's going to do in every problem and circumstance we face. But he uses it as an opportunity to test us. Now, this word for test, it's normally used in a negative sense in the New Testament. So, for, for, for example, it's used of putting God to the test. Or it's used of describing Satan as the tester, the tempter, right? Um, or, or being tempted by sin. That's obviously not what Jesus has in mind here. He's not using this as an opportunity to tempt his disciples towards sin. He's using it, this word here in the same way that it's used in Revelation 2.10. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord says to the church that uh, many of them are going to be put into prison so that they might be tested. And they will suffer for 10 days. And he says, be faithful to the end and I'll give you the crown of life. That same way here, Jesus is testing his disciples. He is... He is drawing out of them the reality of their faith in order to prove it by examining it and putting it under pressure to prove what's genuine. So let me me go through that. So to test something in this way is to try it or to prove the genuineness of it either by examining it or putting it under pressure. So either looking at it to see, okay, wait, is this a real diamond or not? Right? Or, or putting it under pressure to see if it holds up. That's what Jesus is doing. He's testing. He's not tempting. He's testing to see the reality of their faith and to draw it out and to prove the genuineness of it. And, and really, in essence, to see how far their faith in him will go practically before it succumbs to doubt. Every test that we face... It's, exactly, it's accomplishing exactly that. The Lord is drawing out of us the reality of our faith to see how far our faith in Him will go before it bows to the doubts that rise. Now what we find in verses 7-9 through nine is that under this test, the disciples' faith did not have to go very far before it succumbed to doubt. So Philip's response in verse 7, for example, it has a strong flavor of disbelief. So it almost sounds as if Philip is offended that Jesus is even asking him this question. Uh, Philip, where where are we going to find bread to to feed this many people? Philip's response back is, "Ah, 200 denarii is not going to be enough to buy food to feed this amount of people. Are you serious? Are you even asking a real question? We don't have money for that. I don't, I don't know where we're going to find bread to feed that many people. I don't know, Jesus. Where, where are we going to find bread to, to feed that many people? 200 denarii is about seven months' wages. So in modern-day terms, not factoring in the effects of inflation and what that might, might, might cause, but it would be somewhere around twenty-eight dollars to $30,000. So... That's what he's thinking as a sum or as an amount of like, even that would not be enough to feed this crowd of people. And you can hear the shock that's being expressed in what Philip says. You're asking me where we can find enough bread for everyone. Even if we could find enough bread to feed everyone, we don't have enough money to pay for it. 
We couldn't afford it. So when Philip's faith is tested, what comes out? When the circumstance is pushed upon Philip, what comes out of Philip? Is it a strong, resolute belief in, in, the, in the sufficiency of Christ to meet the moment of need? No, it's not. Philip's focus is on the enormity of the problem, not the enormity of his God. You know, and, and it's, it's, it's almost as those who read the Gospel of John, those who can sit down in our living rooms and just read page by page, it almost feels inexcusable. It's like, wait a second, Philip, like, weren't you there when, when Jesus turned water into wine, weren't you there when he made an abundance of provision when the crowd had, at the wedding had nothing? Shouldn't, shouldn't that have connected in your mind somehow that Jesus is the one who can answer this problem? Well, it didn't. And before we start getting too hoity-toity and judging Philip too much, you and I, you know how often you and I are the same way. Judging the Lord by our circumstances rather than judging our circumstances by the Lord. Well, Philip is tested, and what comes out of him is a focus on the enormity of the demand rather than the enormity of his God. Well, what about this other disciple in verses 8 and 9? Another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, speaks up. And Andrew says to Jesus in verse 9, there's a, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but, but what are these things for so many? Right, so, so here's some of the provision that we have, Lord, but... Uh, Five barley loaves and two fish for, for this crowd? I don't know how that equates. I don't know how to make sense of it. It's not going to be enough. And so Andrew's response is slightly different than Philip's, right? Philip was focused on what they don't have. Andrew was focused on the limits of what they did have. Right? So both sides are, are expressions of disbelief or doubt. Um, Philip or Andrew says, we've got five loaves and two fish and... and, and well, the boy has it anyway, but that's not going to feed 5,000 men. Now, to get the sense of how ridiculous this idea was, that it would be helpful to understand just how little food we're talking about when we're talking about five barley loaves and two fish. When we think of loaves of bread, very often we get in mind like a loaf of bread that we would go buy at the grocery store, this this thing may be about that long, or if you, if, if you get a different kind, it may be about that long, right, for the bigger families. Maybe about that big. We think of, of that as a loaf of bread, and we imagine this young boy carrying around five loaves of bread for his lunch that's about that size in his knapsack or something, right? Well, that, that's not what these five barley loaves, that's, that's not what they were. They would have been about the size of your palm, so... About, about this size, basically just rolled up dough made from, from barley, and it's cooked in, in that amount, and you can, you can hold it in your hand. I've seen these down in Guatemala when I was doing mission work in Guatemala. They would sell these out on the street every morning. You could just pick them up, you know, five of them, probably take up about that much room in a bag, you know. R.C. Sproul described it very well. He described these as about the size of a Twinkie, All right? So you imagine a Twinkie, that's about the size of these five barley loaves each. And, uh, and then you think about the fish. We, we imagine fish as like a whole fish that you would pull out of the sea or, or Henry. You'd pull out of the lake with, with a net, right? 
Everyone, who was here for the baptisms? Who was there for the baptisms last week? Did you see Henry's fish that he caught with a net off of the dock? It's, it was like a five-pound largemouth bass. And I've, I dream of catching fish like that with a lure, and he just sticks the net down on the water and pulls it up, and there it is. Right? We, we think of fish in that kind of term. Right? This, this good-sized, two good-sized fish there, that's not the word that's used here in Greek. That word would be ichthus, right? You remember, uh, I'll make you fishers of men, and there's ichthus was, was kind of the term that became, the Christians became known as in the early days of the church. Well, this word is different. Uh, this word speaks of like a small preserved fish, maybe something like a, like a sardine or a herring. We're talking about a, a really, really small fish, maybe about that much. It's usually used only as a garnish for a main meal. So, so you would take the bread and just spread a little fish on it and it would, it, would, it would satisfy you a little more than just eating bread, right? So holding up this little amount of food to this sizable crowd, Andrew's like, I, I just don't think this can be done, Lord. Now at the heart of it, though both of their responses are, though they're focusing on two different things outwardly, at the heart of their responses, really, it's the same thing, right? Yes, there's a lack of faith, but more specifically, what we find in their responses are excuses for why they can't do what the Lord is calling them to do. The Lord invites them in to problem solve. How are we going to feed? Where are we going to find food to feed this large crowd? And all that comes out of the disciples back towards Christ were reasons why they couldn't do it. Boy, that's us. The Lord presses our faith by calling us to do something. He plops us down in situations or circumstances that seem to do nothing more then show us that they are impossible to figure out or impossible to meet? And how do we respond? We respond by telling the Lord all the reasons why we can't do what He's calling us to do. And that's across the board, right? Don't just think of the big things like being called to go to Turkey and to, in missions. But the small things like being a faithful husband in your home and leading your wife in prayer and washing her in the water of the Word. Sometimes that can feel insurmountable. It can feel like an impossible situation. And I don't have the reserves to shepherd my wife like that. Or wives, it could look like you struggling to submit to your husbands in a godly and holy manner. Wow, Lord, how do I do this with this man? <laughs> if he were more like you, it would be much easier to submit to him. But Lord, please help me submit to him. I can't do it. Living a single life, you're not married, and you feel the impossibility of trying to survive in this world in a way that honors Christ, and yet feeling so alone. Like, Lord, I can't do the life you've called me to do. I can't live it. I'm just alone. I've got no support. I don't have the husband or the wife that I want, that I feel I need. Or how about that moment when you feel those butterflies in your stomach? You're talking with someone in a store or at work, and you know, you just know that the Spirit of the Lord is prompting you. 
to open your mouth and speak the gospel to that person, and you start thinking through all the reasons why that wouldn't be a good idea. Well, what, if they, what if they reject me? What if they don't like me? Lord, I, I want to be liked by people. I don't want people not to like me. Uh, Lord, if I say that in this context, I could lose my job. If I call someone to Christ and it gets back to the boss, the boss could come down on me and I could get fired. Lord, you don't want me to get fired, right? Well, how many Christians did the Lord throughout church history, how many Christians did the Lord absolutely will for that Christian to get fired from work in being faithful to his calling? Or maybe more dire situations. Lord, if I speak right now for the sake of your name, I could lose my life. Is that really what you want? Luke chapter 14 comes alongside of us and says, you've got to count the cost. Who begins building a building without figuring up whether or not he has enough money to finish the project? What king goes out to do battle with an army without first figuring out whether his army is big enough to take on the other? Unless you hate mother, father, son, daughter, uh, wife, wife, children, um, yea, even your own life, you can't be my disciple, Jesus says. We feel that pressure so often and we can respond the same ways that the disciples are responding here with giving Jesus all the reasons why we cannot obey what he's calling us to, to do. It's like Moses, right? The Lord comes to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go down to Egypt. I want you to speak to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him, let my people go. And Moses says, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second, Lord. You don't understand. I mean, I know I'm talking with you just fine right now, but I can't go talk to Pharaoh. My mouth doesn't work right. <laughs> the Lord says, who made your mouth, Moses? Didn't I make your mouth? Can't I be with you? Can't I strengthen you to do what I call you to do? That's the point, right? That's the point, and that's the point of testing that Jesus is bringing his disciples to right here, right now. See, the whole future of their ministry was going to be one impossible calling after another. It was going to be one impossible situation being met by another impossible situation. And the only way the disciples were going to learn how to meet those situations well was to learn that it wasn't about them and it wasn't about their abilities. It was about Christ as the one who called them to do it. See, when Jesus brings us into difficult circumstances or situations, it's not so that you and I can evaluate our own resources or our own strength and come up with some way that we can meet the challenge before us. That's not the point. The point is to bring us to the, to, to the, to the spot where we can recognize we have nothing to offer in relation to the situation we're facing. Our only hope is that Jesus comes through. That's the point. I praise the Lord for what we see in the disciples here. One, it tells me they weren't perfect men. <laughs> and that makes me feel very much better about following Christ. Right? But it gives me hope as well. Especially seeing that Jesus was not expecting his disciples to figure out how to address this problem before Jesus was going to move in order to address it. What was it that Jesus was calling his disciples to do in relation to this situation? Not come up with a solution, 
but simply obey what Jesus was commanding them to do. You know, they didn't, they didn't have to have great and strong faith that would conquer this mountainous crowd of, and their need. They didn't have to have great faith. They just had to have enough faith to obey Christ and do what He was telling them to do. And Jesus would supply the rest. That gives me courage. Well, we see the need. We see Jesus using the need as an opportunity to test His disciples. And then thirdly, and we'll do this briefly, we see Jesus providing for the need in revealing His glory. You know, despite the doubts and the limitations that Jesus' disciples were, were throwing back at him, Jesus was not dissuaded. He says in verse 10, uh, have the people sit down. That's really a bad translation here. The word here is recline, or, or have the people lie down, right? So, and, and in fact, it doesn't even say have the people lie down. The word here in Greek is very strong. It says, make the people lie down. You make them lie down. Very forceful. Now John also tells us that that in this place where they were making the people lie down, there was much grass in that place. right? Therefore the men, about 5,000 in number, sat down in that place. Now Matthew 14, 21 tells us that that number probably was somewhere closer to 15 to 20,000 people because that did not include the women and children who were present among them. And so there was much grass in that place. I lost my track here. There we go. Now by now we know that the Apostle John is a details kind of guy. right? When the woman at the well went back to the city in Samaria, what did she leave behind her? She left her water pot. <laughs> has no bearing on the rest of the story. But it's a detail that John includes. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he comes to Jesus when? He comes to Jesus at night. And there's theological significance there, right? Coming to Jesus at night. It's, it's uh, picturing some of the shame or maybe even some of the timidity that Nicodemus had in coming to Jesus, not wanting to be seen by everyone else doing it. Uh, in John chapter 2, we're not just told that Jesus changed water into wine. We're told that He changed up to uh, you know, 150 gallons of water into wine. Six water pots, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. When John gives us a detail, he means for us to understand something significant by it. So even here in verse 10 and 11, we're told that these people were being uh, commanded, they were being made to lie down, They were being made to lie down in a place where there was much grass. And then it goes on to talk about the abundance of the Lord satisfying their need. right? Just uh, an, an abundance of provision. That after giving thanks, He gave food to His disciples who gave it to the, the men who were lying down. Again, that's the same, or a different word, but means the same thing. Lying down there. Verse 12, He gave... He gave, uh, they ate as much as they wanted and they were all satisfied, right? And they picked up 12 baskets left over. Now, why all this detail? What is John getting at? Some say that John is simply trying to, to draw us into the story by having all of this detail presented to make it more um, effective in its imagery. 
Um, others would say that what John is doing here is he's confirming that what time of year it was. So Passover was at a certain time of year, and, and that's when there was a lot of green grass, you know, in, in, in March and April, before May came and all that grass was burned up by the sun. Some commentators go that direction. Or, or maybe we're told that there was a lot of grass there just so that we're aware that Jesus was very concerned about making sure their clothes didn't get dirty. Make them lie down. Here's a place where there's a lot of grass. Go make them lie down over there. I would have appreciated that. Right? But I don't think that's what John has in mind. Is any of that really what John is getting at whenever he's talking to us about these seemingly insignificant details? I don't think so. In fact, I will quote a familiar passage to you, and you let me know if you hear any similarities in themes or, or language between this passage and what we see here in John 6. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. I'll have no needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. My cup overfloweth. Right? He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. There are themes between Psalm 23 and John 6 that are drawing a direct connection between Yahweh as the shepherd of Israel in the Old Testament and Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Yahweh's shepherding ministry, if that makes sense. You see, between the language John uses and the common themes of Psalm 23, the significance of John 6 is not about the location where this happened. It's not about the time of year. It's not merely filled with needless detail about what was going on when Jesus did this miracle. The significance here is pointing to the significance of the person who is doing this miracle. Let me end just briefly on a number of lessons we can take away from today. Practical lessons. Number one, there's no circumstance or situation that is too great or impossible for Christ to manage. No matter what logical reasons there might be to make the situation before you or that make the situation before you seem impossible, God's love will be manifest in that situation and his shepherding faithfulness will be made known. Let me say this. God loves to put his people in situations where the need seems so big <laughs> and our ability to meet that need seems so small so that when he does come through, the magnitude of his sufficiency is made known and we glorify him for his faithfulness. That's what Jesus is doing with these disciples here. That's how he's perfecting their faith. And it's the same thing that the Lord does in our lives today. When you meet a situation that seems impossible, it's only so that you can see the magnitude of, of the God of the impossible coming through for you. So there's no circumstance or situation that's too great or impossible for Christ. Number two, There's nothing that God's grace enables us to contribute that is too little for Christ to use. There's nothing that God's grace enables us to contribute that is too little for Christ to use. Think about this young boy 
Five barley loaves, two small fish. Barley actually was the lowest quality of bread that you could get in that time. So we know by that, this guy was poor. He had hardly nothing to offer in order to address the need of the situation. And yet in the hands of Christ, it became entirely enough. In fact, it was abundantly enough. They picked up 12 baskets full. Now, just by way of analogy, right, by, by in a similar way, you may feel that you have, that what you have pales in comparison to the need before you. What you need to take away from this is that you, you should not be afraid to put the little bit that you have to contribute to the situation in the hands of Christ and watch him work on behalf of the need. You may not have power and influence to reach the whole world, but by God's grace, you can sow the good seed of the gospel wherever you are. And through sowing the good seed of the gospel and the ministry and the working of the Holy Spirit through his truth, he will cause that seed to fall in good soil and there will be 30 and 60 and 100 fold harvest from one little seed. You may not be able to go to China. You may not be able to go to Thailand. Turkey may be an insurmountable impossibility in your eyes. But in the hands of Christ, just a little bit is is abundantly more than what's needed by his power and in his grace. So don't be afraid to offer what you have. Just be willing to be faithful and obey Christ in faith, and he will use that offering for the glory of his name. Number three. This is really important, and I don't have time to hammer it out. You'll see that's a pun. But faith is forged on the anvil of obedience. Faith is forged on the anvil of obedience. It's when these disciples obeyed the command of Christ that their faith in Christ increased. That's where you and I are going to grow stronger and more resilient in our faith. It's through our obedience to the will of Christ. Just enough faith to obey what he tells us to do. That's it. And Christ will cause that small faith to grow and expand like the growing of a mustard seed. It begins very small and gets bigger. All right, number four. And this is the ultimate application for today. The Lord Jesus truly is and always will be the perfect shepherd for all who put their trust in him. In every circumstance, in every need, in every trial that you have, Jesus will abundantly show himself to be your protector. He will abundantly show himself to be your provider, the one who will never, who will never allow you to suffer lack and to be in want. Now, like the provision of the barley loaves, the provision of Christ may not be the most extravagant provision. You need a car, the Lord may not provide you a Bentley, right? It might be a beater, but it's going to get you to where you need to go, and it's going to be enough in the hands of Christ to satisfy the need. By Christ's provision, he will always show himself to be abundantly sufficient to meet exactly whatever need we have. And beloved, here's the the best part about this is that you and I, we have our whole lives to experience the Lord testing our faith like this. Life is not a drudgery and walking with Christ is not something that's, that's just 
an obligation. There's, there's a joy and there's a, um, a freedom and there's, there's a glory behind walking with Christ and allowing him to bring you into situations where he's going to test your faith. We oftentimes think that the trial is horrible and we can't wait to get out of it. Rather than thinking that way, why don't we set our eyes on Christ and look forward to what he's going to do to bring us through that trial? Because that's where our faith will be increased in Christ. We have our whole lives to, to, to watch Christ come through for us in these various ways. And it's going to climax on that final day when you take your last breath. When you face the final trial that each one of us in this room will face. If your faith is in Christ, Christ will show himself in that moment to be abundantly sufficient for you. You will not meet death by yourself if you are in Christ. Christ will be right there. And, and you will be able to sing with a tongue that is unfettered by this lisping, stammering tongue that we all struggle with right now. When you are finally liberated from this body of death and Christ comes in his faithfulness to bring you home to glory, to be with him, then your tongue will sing in a sweeter and more noble song. The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. Amen. Amen. Boy, that's really good. Amen. Jesus is going to show himself to be sufficient for you. Even at your greatest moment of need. That's what death is for each one of us. It's where we experience our greatest moment of need in the moment of, the, of, of our greatest lack of power to do anything about it. And yet right there, Jesus will show himself faithful to us.